Yesterday we went to down to Buena Vista and up to the Collegiate Peaks and hiked on a ridgeline through snow. Yeah. We've been having an incredible time here in Colorado for the last several days. Um, this is, what, day four? Yep. Yeah, day four that I've been here. Sam, you've been here for a few weeks longer than that, but we have been doing some incredible hiking. Uh, we hinted at that in our, our teaser that we released prior to this episode, but also... We got to go to the Collegiate Peaks yesterday. So, Sam, what was that experience like? Well, driving up through Cottonwood Pass, the snow kept mounting. They actually cleared the snow on Friday. So we were kind of lucky to actually That's be able to so go incredible. up. And about halfway up, the snow on the side of the banks was probably in between 5 to 10 or 12 feet, depending on where you kind of were. Like, it was, it was covering, like half of trees yes like evergreen trees it was incredible so we're like going up through the snow and eventually you get to conwood pass and you basically have a 360 panorama of maybe a, over 10 14ers which is actually a lot for the state of colorado in one area oh it was just like a stunning view something that we really wanted to do is get out into nature so that we could experience some of what we're going to be talking about in this podcast because why is this important it's it's much more so than just a pretty view there's so much more going mm. on and one of the cool things we ran into is we met so many people on the trails yeah that we just had like random amazing conversations with yeah we even ran into a few of my friends back from kansas city and yeah. we we're actually hike we like kind of got over the snow and we're hiking up this little path where there wasn't any snow so we could kind of go across a ridgeline and ran into some friends like what are you doing here so it just was super fun What's crazy, I feel like, is that in all of our conversations, at some point, uh, the topic of environmentalism came up. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking with, her name was Amanda, I believe, on like my first day yeah. here, when we were going up to the Flatirons, and on our way down, there was a solo hiker who just kind of fell in with us at the same pace, and yeah. talking about um, how she's noticed just the treatment of the wildlife yeah. as, is kind of disparate from this Colorado ideal of, mm. of being in nature and respecting nature and yeah. how she'd seen all of these um, kind of people like we noticed when we saw the, the mountain goats on the side of the road. Yeah. People just pull their car right up to these wild animals and get out with children on their shoulders and approach these animals. <laughs> and it's like, that's not the best idea. Not here. safe for the child or the animal. <laughs> and then it's even worse when it's not a mountain goat, but it's a bear. And people yeah. see a black bear and they're trying to get as close as possible yeah. to get their Instagram shot. Yeah. So we were, we were having those inter- environmental conversations the whole week. Even we ran into my friend Anna and found out that she's studying environmental literature. Yeah. And so just, it seems to be an issue that a lot of people are thinking about today. Yeah. And it's something that we wanted to come in and kind of take a three-prong approach today. We yeah. want to talk to you guys about, as we are the Will Morons, we're coming from Asbury, though we're currently in Colorado, the theological yeah. dimension. We want to talk about the scientific dimension. We want to talk yeah. about the political dimension and the way that we, both as a, a seminary community, as Christians, and as critical thinking humans, yeah. are coming about this conversation. So we're going to kind of have three acts to this, this episode. The first is going to be looking at it theologically. The second is going to be looking at the science and the data. And the third is going to be looking at policy. You know, what do we do about, you know, in light of those two things. But I think before we even begin those three acts, 
it's easy to begin focusing on social justice or to get really heightened. And I think that's really important and good. And we're going to go there. But before we go there, we really want to start this podcast off and say, first off, there is a spiritual aesthetic just value to creation in nature. And I feel like coming from the last three days hiking, it's I'm coming at from an coming at it from a different lens. Like I, you know, there's just something so beautiful and spiritual about it. Even being up at the collegiate peaks and we just had some mindfulness centered prayer meditation, whatever you want to call it, just up there going, I don't want to lose this. I know. Like it was incredible. We, we hiked, we were, it's kind of a surprise hike in the collegiate peaks wilderness because there's not a trail there, but you're able to just kind of go and follow the ridge lines. We're well above the tree line at this point. Yeah. The air is thin. We are all huffing and puffing. We were above 13,000 feet yeah. on this ridge line. So it was, it was high up and we got to the furthest peak that we could reach um, before kind of getting just into the deep snow. Like four or five feet. <laughs> yeah, like really deep, swallow you up snow and just sat down and meditated on how beautiful it is. I was stricken by the words from John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. Oh, yeah. You can talk to God and listen for the casual reply. Oh. And that's just how it felt up there. Yeah. I and mean, there's a there's a connection that you get out when you're just really in nature that yeah. I feel like it's kind of undeniable. It's a universal experience. So when yeah. you get away and out into nature, just yeah. into creation, there's a connection. I think, and there's a sense of the mourning the loss of biodiversity and of species and of environmental landscapes, like the Great Barrier Reef. We could go on and on, but there's something about that. It's interesting even some weeks back seeing those fires in the Notre Dame Cathedral and how so, you know, and so many people that just was, there was visceral reaction of a loss of culture and civilization and of religion. And it was just so potent for so many people around the world. I think there's a, there's even a greater sense when it comes to, to to nature and the environment like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole incident at Notre Dame, that, that, that's like a really Notre Dame, we should yeah. say, not the college, yeah. the yeah. cathedral. Notre Dame. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's, it's so similar, but that's so in your face and immediate. It's not gradual. It didn't happen in degrees. It happened in one day. Yeah. But the same thing's happening to the cathedral of mm-hmm. nature yeah. right now. And, and we talk about sacred space and you know how many so many people have encountered the person of Christ or God or had a rich just touch of transcendence in a space like that. But think about nature. Think about all the places in, in nature where people have had the same thing, if not more. And so I think as we segue into this theology, before we get to even the stewardship, we have to kind of just sit on Genesis 1 and just let it be said, it is good. Like, this is good. And there's something just lovely and beautiful about it. I think everyone knows that in their bones. Like, you know, that there's just something amazing about creation. The hailstorm on top of the mountain. Yeah, that was extra good. <laughs> It was good, man. It's one of those things retrospectively you really enjoy when you're getting pelted by ice you know, up on a mountain. It's, it can be a little frustrating. Yeah. It's one of the things uh, in our first act here for theology is the way that we as Christians even approach the issue of climate change. And this isn't something of a, oh, we are just taking the assumption the anthropomorphic, you know, man-made climate change, global warming yeah. is a definite fact and the whole world's coming to an end and it's really catastrophized. Yeah. Um, we kind of want to come in and say no matter... It's very apocalyptic. Yeah, no matter where you stand on this issue, it's an issue that we're all talking about in yeah. Christian communities. And from my um, 
sort of perspective from my experience. I've seen a lot of that conversation circles around this division between um, the way that people read the first chapter of Genesis um, oh. in verse, what is it, 42? God, I should have this open yeah. for me right now. But it says uh, God made man his own image, and then he says go. Verse 26. And take and on, 26, yeah. Yeah, yeah, take dominion over the earth and subdue the birds of the air and the fish yeah. of the sea and everything that crawls on the land. Yeah. And the way that we have uh, an approach to environmentalism and to nature, which is this sort of uh, dominion versus stewardship. The yeah. way that you interpret that word in that verse is so important. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that kind of, are we, are we here to plunder and take? Are we here to cultivate? Yeah. And, and I think that when you kind of see that portrait in Genesis 2, um, it's, it's, it's a cultivation, it's a stewardship, um, it's a responsibility and it's our home. And so I think that's a really important, uh, kind of tension that we've discussed the last few days as we've been driving through Colorado and thinking about how Christians approach this subject. Yeah. And whether you are a catastrophe minded person, as far as climate change, or if you're not really sure where it is, I think that we are all reaching this collective point where we know that the earth is changing yeah um it's kind of hard to deny that it's just the extent to which it is changing we argue over Mm -hmm. but if you have this earth that you believe uh god's given us whether you believe it's just nature that we are in if you're more agnostic or atheistic or if you're religious and you're like wow this is god's gift to us like why would we want to abuse it in such a terrible way Mm -hmm. um i've got this quote by uh uh, Heho, and she wrote a lot of books on the gospel of climate change. And she says this, and I think this really sums up a lot of the way that I think about it. Hmm. If I say that I respect God, that I love God, and God has given us this incredible life-giving planet, then I strip every resource at the expense of my poor sisters and brothers, one yeah. in six of whom die because of pollution-related issues, who are suffering and dying today, then I'm not somebody who takes the Bible seriously. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think one of the things that, what, what's her name again? Uh, Catherine Hayhoe. Um, Catherine does there is she connects environmentalism, care for creation, care for other creatures with care for human beings and how they're, they're connected. And when you see that connection, then it's, it's almost impossible because, yeah, we could go through scripture and try to find our proof text for creation. We could look at Genesis yeah. 1. We could look at Romans 8 that talks about creation groaning. For basically, here's the Samuel paraphrase for human beings to get their stuff together, right? Like yeah. get your act together. Stop, you know? stop being we're, terrible. We're waiting for you to get your your act together, aka be revealed as the sons of God. Um, we could look at, at Revelation, which you see like creation kind of going crazy, and then God God says, you know, and I don't whatever do we'll figure this one out later. But you know, basically theologically, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. Basically, like. There, this is something I will bring justice. It's kind against. of a harrowing statement. <laughs> I know it is, but this fact of I will bring justice on behalf of creation. We could look at those proof texts, and, and I think they're powerful, and we could marinate in them. But then also just looking at the the theme of caring for the poor and caring for the needy is probably the most universal theme in Scripture from an ethical standpoint. Um, that became all the more clear to me this semester as I actually had to read through the whole Testament again, and I realized I'd spent a while <laughs> and. And so when you connect those, you realize there's a huge ethical imperative here because of that connection of, as Catherine talks about people and environment, they're not separate. Yeah. And the effects that it has, like when we disrespect our environment, we're not just hurting ourselves a little bit, but we are disproportionately hurting the poor. Yeah. 
You know, it's the unintended consequences. Yeah, it's 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 the middle upper class American family that's not on the coast that will be the least affected by environmental degradation or social inequality on the whole planet. Until about 50 years from now when yeah. the East Coast is mostly underwater. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, I have a lot of family in Florida, so I don't know what to do about that one. But anyway, <laughs> I love you all. <laughs> yeah, buy, buy inland land that's cheap right now, and it'll be beachfront property not too long. <laughs> oh, anyway, getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, but... getting onto that. We were talking about the dominion versus stewardship. and um, it, it's We're sounding cool. very apocalyptic already. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, spoiler alert. You, you, if you've known me, you probably know where I personally fall on these issues, but I don't want to completely color this podcast totally. with where I am because I'm a little more dire and brimstone when it comes to future projections about yeah. climate change, but I don't want that to be um, what makes or breaks your listening to this episode. Totally. But in the Dominion versus Stewardship, what's really cool is last night, uh, me and Sam were watching Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Yes. And when they get to the city of Gondor, which if you haven't seen the movies, is like the throne seat of the kingdom of men in the, king, in the land of Middle Earth. And the men of the West are all ruled by the throne of Gondor. Well, there has not been a king on the throne for like a thousand years. Yeah. And so there's a line of stewards who are watching over that throne. They get there, and Denethor is the steward over that throne. Mm. Now, if you've seen the movies, read the books. In the books, he's a much better character, but in the movies, he's nuts. And he's not <laughs> stewarding yeah. over what he's been told to watch over yeah. very well at all. Yeah. He's letting the kingdom go to crap. He's letting the evil forces encroach on it, burn down their cities, destroy what yeah. they have. I feel like in a similar way... We have been approaching nature from this perspective that we are the king instead of we are the steward. Yeah. Yes, we've been given dominion over nature, over the world. Like there is no doubt that humans run the earth. <laughs> like we are the yeah. dominant species on earth. Yeah. So from a scientific or a theological perspective, the yeah. earth is kind of in our care. We control it. Yeah. But when you dominate, yeah. when you're strip mining, and when you're putting pollutants into the soil, when you're disregarding our ozone layer and our atmosphere by pumping in pollutants yeah. over and over, what you're doing is you're not stewarding that. You're dominating it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's our home. And so it's, it's not like we're in this neighborhood. And if we just set fire to the home, it's like we'll walk out the front door and we'll go somewhere else. It's <laughs> like it, there's, there's, we can infuse it with all this theological meaning, but then there's this just common sensory of like, this is, this is the home you've been given. Yeah. This is something that you need to steward for your well being. It's that, it really is that simple. And I, I love the, the Genesis 2 motif because it's, it's, and I think it goes with this thing of being king versus being steward that I think we're called to bear God's image. And God's like, I'm going to put you on this planet and I'm going to give you this. I love the word vocation. Like I'm going to give you this sacred vocation to do this thing called cultivating, creating, building civilization, culture. And that's why I love Eden as a garden. The thing about a garden is it's this, it's the tension of chaos and order. It's taking a natural environment, but bringing order to it. And I think what, what's happening is, is that we've kind of, we can, when we miss that, where we actually, we're, we're building civilization. I mean, just think like, look at a, look at a big city, like look at a New York city or Dubai or Beijing. Yeah, it's it's breathtaking. It's incredible what humans do, but in a sense, if we're not getting that balance of chaos and order, right, we're, it's, we're going to flip the scales and go back to chaos. And yeah. that really is the kind of the picture. And so we're called to kind of saddle this tension. And, and that's why I love the garden. 
you know, this, the imagery of the garden. We're not meant to go back and just like live in the woods. And, you know, like there's a sense, you know, well, maybe some of you want to do that. Great. Like, let's do it. But my point is there's a, there is a tension of doing this thing. And so no one's calling for this just incredible reversal. It means we just, we got to get the balance right. And that's from the get go. That's in the first two chapters of scripture. Yeah. If you're going to take that viewpoint, you're like, Hey, like we have an awesome opportunity to bring order into this chaos. Yeah. But you're from a sort of dominating standpoint. It's like, well, I'm just going to get what I can out of this beauty while yeah. I'm here. And then the next people can deal with what they yeah. have. Whereas when we're stewarding it, you're like, eventually I'm going to give this to someone else. Mm. So if you're in from the Christian camp, if you're coming from the same perspective that we are, then we know that eventually like we are giving this yeah. back to God. Like yeah. we are everything that we have here, like this earth is we're stewing, stewarding it on God's behalf. Yeah. And God gave us, you know, two main commandments to love the Lord, your God, with everything you got and to love your neighbors yourself. Well, which one of those are you doing? If you're leaving the earth, you're given in a smoking ruin. Yeah. If you're completely irresponsibly and without any cognizance of what you're doing, causing the earth to be depreciated and lesser by the end of your life than making it better. I mean, if yeah. you really are like, man, I love God and I love his people and I love this earth. And then you just do nothing but continue to add to yeah. the destruction. Mm. What does that say about your love? Yeah. And I, you had a great point there because one big theme in scripture is intergenerational blessing. Yeah. And, and I, the, up a lot. the opposite of intergenerational blessing is, is the motivation and sentiment of, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and, and you can see this in Isaiah 39, God comes against him and says, basically, because of what you've done, because of your unfaithfulness, there's actually going to be judgment on your people in the coming days. And what is his response? Well, at least it's not going to be in my day. Yeah. That's what Hezekiah says. And there's this sense of, he goes, I can wash my hands clean because I'm not going to see the consequences of my own sinfulness and missing the mark and unfaithfulness and lack of regard for others. And I think it's easy to fall into that trap today too, to go, well, it's going to be really bad, but not in my day, at least yeah. not as much as, you know, as is going to be an unfolding days. And I think that is, it goes against the grain of what you talked about of that, of basically passing it on yeah. and, and leaving it. It's just, it's so I love it's the common sensory. It says like my parents say, leave a place better than you found it. Yeah. When I go stay at a guest, my parents say, leave it better than you found it. It's just, it's one of those just simple things. It's like, okay, let's try to scale that to like planet earth. <laughs> leave it better than you found it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is something that when you look at our data is primarily a evangelical Western Christian problem. Mm. When Pew Research in 2015 and 2018 uh, polled, how people feel about anthropomorphic climate change or global warming. Um, just about every group reaches that like 90% consensus except for evangelical Protestants in America. 28%. Yeah. Uh, that's all that believe that climate change is real. The yeah. rest of them either labeled it as a liberal hoax, Interesting. Um, a attempt for government power grab or something that's been blown way out of proportion. Do you think that's more theological or political, or is it kind of a, a fusion of both? I think that you have all of that playing in. Yeah. Because uh, religion is, is so politicized, and it, it's not a new thing. That's the way it's been since the first Christians uttered Jesus is Lord in opposition to the ruling Caesar party. Yeah. You know, like, religion is political, and so yeah. we see the politics, we see the science, but 
as we're still in this sort of like theological section, I, I know that so much of it just keeps coming back to most of the evangelicals I talk to. Mm-hmm. They simply believe that climate change would be uh, controverted or subvertive to God's plan. That mm, God's yeah. plan is this sort of um, eschatological yeah. um, ending we see in Revelation, and that all of the humans or a lot of humans dying from climate change or that our earth being destroyed yeah. by uh, carbon emissions, that that doesn't line up with the way that they look at the way they read the Bible. Mm. And so there's a huge disconnect. They go, this can't happen because that's not God's plan. Fascinating. It seems like then there's two opposite theological propensities. One is to say, well, we're headed to an apocalyptic future anyway, actually inspired by God. Therefore, we don't need to care for creation or the opposite, which is what I've heard is, you know, the like appeal to things like the Noahic covenant. God said, he'll never destroy the earth again. So we know we're not going to have a problem. And he said, he never destroyed the earth by flood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he never said you won't destroy it, kid, you know? (laughs) So, but, um, and I think, which I'll say this, a revelation is a, is a, is a hard book to interpret. We, we go to a Wesleyan school, you know, and, and, uh, and, John Wesley didn't like the book of Revelation. Um, but I'll say this, even if you look at the book of Revelation, it's not, you can, you can easily say this is the result of human sinfulness. It's a lot like you see this in parts of scripture where God's judgment is simply God allowing human beings to do what they do and to reap the consequences of their actions. It's like, it's just a, it's a kind of a cycle of sin and death. And so God is, God's got his hands off. He's like, I'm going, I'm going to allow you to, to reap the consequences of what you do. And I think it's very envi- Wesleyan. Envi- environmentalism is like that. Yeah. It's, I don't think God is the one kind of, you know, waving his wand, like half of the Great Barrier Reef, just like you're gone, you know, or let's lose a million species in the Amazon River Basin. Like he's not, this is, this is the result of natural forces, specifically the result of human actions. And, and so much of this is like the, the small gradual changes yeah. that we know that we're like reaping the results of our own choices, but that the visible changes over one person's lifetime are just small enough that you're almost like the frog in the slowly boiling water. Mm. You just don't notice it moment to moment, but after a long enough time, it's like, oh, wow, we're actually boiling ourselves. Yeah. Just ask your grandparents about what it was like with bird life, insect life. Um, small animal life around when they were young, when they were kids. Oh, yeah. There has a, been a tremendous, like, large-scale extinction of mm-hmm. bird species, mm-hmm. even just in America. Yeah. There's so many less birds in bird song. And water pollution is really significant as well. My uncle Gary, who lives in Florida, he says that when he was growing up, all of the lakes in Florida were just, like, clear, and that there's been so much pollution because of commercialism. And, you know, Florida's become a very commercialized state especially central Florida. And so it's just, it's, we, we see it happening around us. The consequences are there. And so it's, it's something to take seriously. There's a group um, called the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which is a Christian environmentalist organization, but mm-hmm. that heavily denies that there is man-made climate change going on. Mm-hmm. And one of their quotes is, that we have an infinitely wise God who designed an, or sorry, that an infinitely wise God designed, an infinitely powerful God created, and an infinitely faithful God upholds the earth and everything in it, including its climate system. 
And I think that we can simultaneously uphold that ideal that Christ is Mm -hmm. upholding, that Christ made, that Christ is involved with intricately, but still have the recognition that we have to pay the consequences of our own immediate actions in this Mm -hmm. life. And we believe that about, like, even though we're not karmic in the church, we don't think that there's, like, an equal reaction against you when you do something evil. We know that, like, God allows us to suffer our own consequences. The earth is full of pain because of things we do to each other, just like you were saying. And climate is one of those things. It's strange that there's sort of a cognitive dissonance that goes on where we separate what's happening to the earth. We go, it doesn't matter what we do. God's always going to make sure that the earth is pretty and happy and clean. Yeah. But we wouldn't use that same line of reasoning to any other mm-hmm. part of our life or society. Yeah. And I think part of that is it's pe- you know, groups and communities and individuals that are kind of make these arguments. Their, their economics are very uh, divorced from the environment. And yeah. so they're not seeing this happen in their own life. But if you, you go around the world and there are so many countries and communities, you know, where the, the economy and the environment are, are so centrally connected that they can't, they can't create this cognitive dissonance because it's impacting their own families. It's impacting their own livelihoods. It's impacting their own environments. And so I, I think it largely, it largely can be, um, you know, a sign of privilege that we have these biases. Absolutely. So let's look at what we know yeah. about this. So let's kind of switch to the second act, like looking at scientific. the data. Because I imagine there's some people listening are going, Samuel, I'm a Christian. I believe we're meant to care for creation. I put out my recycling. You know, you know, I try to like wash my hands with not, you know, with less water. I bought a car that's you know hybrid, but I really, I'm not really concerned about environmentalism or climate change at a really ma- macro level, and I'm not persuaded of the data mm-hmm. um, that. That's, and it's a, it's a mainstream narrative that's coming out. So, and people are resisting mainstream narratives in lots of ways. And sometimes yeah. it all gets lumped in. So what would you say, Austin? I mean, that 72% of evangelicals that do not believe that climate change is a serious issue, they're not being persuaded by the data. You know, this isn't no. an argument where you can come in and bring in more science. No. And suddenly people who don't think this is real are going to believe in it. Yeah. So I think that um, whether that's you or whether the, you know people in your life that are approaching climate change in that way, that we mm-hmm. need to understand how can we uh, facilitate better conversation with them? Yeah. How can we look at both science and faith coming out of that theological mm-hmm. discussion saying like, how are we loving what God's given us, yeah. but also knowing and knowing who we can trust yeah. about like the data that's being given us. Yeah. I, I think one key is we have to be able to parse all these areas because some people that they're, they're not really, they're worried about the policy proposal or they're worried about the data and we have to be able to parse it all. So for me, in my experience, and Austin, you can add some nuancing to this um, based on yours, there's kind of three, when it comes to the, to the science, there's kind of three kind of stop gaps. The first is, you know, is the climate actually changing? Like, and people, I've known people that will literally argue that. Yeah. I find that to be less and less. I find that the data on that is so significant and there's not really even enough, di- like, you know, distortion of that. But right. the second where people really begin the debate is, yes, the climate's changing, but it, humans aren't the cause, so anthropogenic. Yeah. It just means human-caused um, climate change. So it's not human-caused. Or I'm meeting a, a larger number of people that will say, I believe in climate change. I believe it's human-caused, but there's nothing we can really do about it. 
and sort of a nihilistic approach, kind of like a, Hey, there's, what are we going to do? We just kind of have to write it out. And, you know, and so the, I kind of find people in those camps and there's probably a good amount. Um, and that's where you are. You're, you're just like, whatever, let the earth burn down. Me? About, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, actually not. <laughs> it's amazing. When we were hiking on the mountain yesterday, we were joking around and talking about what we discuss on this episode and discussing what if we just made a whole bunch of just nonsensical propaganda like oh it's actually good that the polar ice caps are melting because uh, polar bears emit so much <laughs> methane that's destroying our earth and as polar bear <laughs> civilizations decline or as their populations decline we're, we're getting better yeah I, <laughs> yeah it was i was actually for about five minutes i was trolling him i hopefully you knew i was joking the whole time but anyway i won't peddle any of those arguments but let me ask you this what would you say from from your perspective austin are the most kind of compelling forms of evidence for you to realize that that one there's climate change two human beings are causing it and three we actually do need to take the policy and that there's something we can do yeah oh uh, so a lot of people have heard the term 97 percent of scientists have consensus that human caused climate change is occurring and a lot of people disagree with the person who wrote that uh, dr cook and yeah. they say that he um didn't use the best methods but it's really that they disagree with all of those are in consensus perfectly about how serious the climate change is. Cause not yeah. all 97% believe yeah. that the world's going to end in a hundred years, yeah. you know, but there is in a, just across the board consensus that climate change is occurring and that it has very strong negative consequences. Yeah. And so for me, the data is so strong because it doesn't come from one source. Yeah. So for example, if you want just really incredible data, you can just look at um, the American, you know, climate studies association. You can look at the WHO and the studies they've done on the effects of pollution. You can look at all of these strong scientific organizations. And if that's not uh, your favorite, well, you can go and look at NASA and look at it from a space perspective. Oh, you don't like NASA? Well, you probably trust the Department of Defense because they also have studies, 100% of them agreeing that we're causing climate change mm-hmm. because they're looking at the way it's going to affect warfare in the future. And yeah. it's really bleak. So yeah. no, matter what your, no matter what your ideological perspective is, there are groups that are saying, yes, this is happening and we're causing it. Yeah. Now imagine... Back in the 50s and 60s and then going up into the 90s when the studies were being done on cigarettes. And it's like almost every scientist agreed. There was like a 98% consensus that cigarettes caused lung cancer. They caused really bad health problems. But then you went and found the 2% of studies that were done by Marlboro that said, no, actually cigarettes aren't harmful. And that's what you held on to. Well, in the same way, the only studies that say that human-caused anthropomorphic climate change isn't occurring are done and funded by special interest, special interest oil yeah. companies. And what's crazy is that even studies done by Exxon Mobil, more than 70% of them agree that we're causing it and that it's bad. And, and I think one sign that it, this is ironic, but these special interest groups like Exxon Mobil, a lot of them are investing into renewable energies because they are, they are seeing across the future and they're saying, we want to keep this industry as long as we can, but we also want to invest in the coming industry. So Exxon yeah. Mobil isn't just, you know, a fossil fuel company, but this is an energy company. And so when I, when I began realizing the way that these specific companies were preparing to evolve and adapt and moving forward, I was going, okay, this follow the money, yeah. <laughs> right? Always follow the money. Yep. 
And, and when we get to the policy sector, I want to additionally talk about that, about yeah. the lucrativeness yeah. of transferring into renewable energy. How yeah. it's not going to be gloom and doom for our economy. Yeah. I'll say uh, in this, we can kind of spend a little more time on the data. You know, I would say it's really important to not cherry pick data because something I found with a lot of my friends, smart people, they're people that are concerned about lots of social issues. So it's not like they're just calloused and not intelligent. They're very smart, very compassionate people. But one thing I found with people that tend to be more skeptical of climate change is I've seen a consistency to cherry pick data. So here's for an example. I'll hear people say, do you know that the ice sheets on Antarctica are actually building mass? Like, the, oh, like that. And they'll kind of like, see, like this kind of disproves it. And I, and it's very fascinating because I go, and then they'll like, they'll kind of, and they'll share a NASA article that says this and be like, even NASA. And I'm going, firstly, let's like, let, let's break this down. NASA is sharing that because they're committed to empirical data and they're not ideologically driven. And so if the ice sheets in Antarctica are actually building mass, they're building mass and they're going to report that. But secondarily, you taking that article from NASA to say that, therefore, oh, the ice sheets are getting bigger globally is a, is a sign of cherry picking because what have you done? You've only looked at you know, ice in the southern hemisphere and the south pole. You've not looked at Greenland. You've not looked at the north pole. And if you actually, yeah. if you study both, if you take both the um, Antarctica and the north pole and Greenland, you have a net loss. And so it's just that simple. I found often... It's, it's, it's not even that people are fabricating data, though that's the case. It's cherry-picking data. It's selecting data and not actually contextualizing it. And so I would really encourage people, and this, is, this kind of gets more macro, and I think this is something yeah. we like to do is kind of go macro, and this kind of goes cross-grain on every issue. We don't want to be people that cherry-pick data to fit our preconceived narratives and ideologies. We want to be people that take the full orb of data the full context and actually go, what's going on here? And I have to say this for if someone posts something like that and isn't actually thinking about the North and the South pole and these ice sheets, then I have to say, it's not that you're just making a mistake. You're being negligent with data. And I have to say this. I in the past have been negligent with data before. It's something we all have to do. Welcome to being a human being. Welcome to being Christian. A lot of times it's just getting excited. Yeah, we get a piece of data. You're like, oh, wow. Like this seems to support something that I I really think is important for you to share it. And so so I think it's, I would say things like that have helped me that I would say were this kind of movement where I was skeptical of climate change and mostly because of my environment in high school to to becoming, you know, receptive of of more of this consensus was actually leaving behind cherry pick data, leaving behind... Um, just kind of certain things that are selected and trying to really contextualize it more. And I'll say the second thing, and I'm, uh, this will kind of be a kind of segue for you to kind of hear your thoughts. Another thing was learning to value good forms of data. Like, like I, institutional trust, I think, is important for me yeah. because I have to be honest, I'm not a climatologist. I'm not an expert. I'll be honest. I've had to take stats courses just so I can understand basic like peer reviewed, like journals, like on these issues. Like I had to like, just even learn what a half standard deviation is to even really be able to read one page. So let's be honest. We can't even read one page of a scientific journal. Like it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And it's, it is very different from reading a blog post, you know, cooked up by an amateur, like, you know, something that I would write. And so I've, I've had podcast. Exactly. Exactly. So I've had to, I've had to sit back and go, institutional trust really matters and also peer review really matters because here's the thing you can find a dude with his PhD or someone that chairs a department at one school or a handful of people and but if they're in a very 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 small minority 
you probably should be cautious when there's a larger consensus. And that's why peer review matters because it's, hey, you did your work, but we're going to have everyone else in the field critique the heck out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And make sure that it's good. Yeah. Because we have a, it's a kind of a universal psychological principle of it's just a lot easier um, to latch on to singular pieces of mm-hmm. information and extrapolate that to the macro. We do that across the board. We have a really hard time differentiating, and you'll see this on social media all the time, between weather and climate. Weather being that single data point. Well, the temperature here today is this. You know, you'll see the picture of someone standing in the snow saying, wish we could get some more global warming here. You know, like even the president of our country tweeted out during some snowstorms this winter that it would be nice if global warming would come and take some of this snow away. You know, what happened to the science? And the idea is that we're taking this singular point of data and we're extrapolating it to the whole system. In counseling, we use this because we compare climate and weather to affect and mood. Your Mm. affect is how you feel right now. And so often people will think about how they feel right in the moment and they'll feel like that's how I feel all the time. But your mood is the way that you felt over the last month, two months, a year. And so when you're in a counseling situation, there's a lot of time you have to spend differentiating between how do you feel today and how have you felt over the last several weeks. So mood is the larger, affect is smaller. Mood is larger, affect is smaller. Your mood, like generally it's like, oh, this person is doing okay, but today they're really depressed. Or usually this person is really depressed, but today they're okay. okay. But if you were to just take the singular data point of today when they're sitting in your office and say... This is how it is all the time. You're going to get a really inaccurate picture. Yeah. And in the same way, when we look at the science of climate change, so many times we'll look at those one little data points like, hey, this month the ice sheets gained some mass. Yeah. But we're not looking at the way that their total mass has changed over the last hundred years where we see overall we have a massive shrinkage. Yeah, and if However, we're only on looking at day, Antarctica and we're not looking at you know Greenland and right. the North Pole, then what are we doing? You've got to look at the full picture exactly in the same way that when we look and we go oh you know we had a nice cool day here well that might be true but eight of the ten hottest years in recorded history have been in the last decade yeah so it's like okay even though today your data point looks like the picture is good let's look at the overall exactly image so we can use our our data um, in a way that is more responsible And I think it's about finding good sources of data. And I think what we can both be honest about is social media probably isn't the best place for that. It isn't, but it's a Um, good jumping off point. Yeah. And if it piques your interest and it it starts dialogue and it kicks you off into research, that's really good. But I think finding good, I think books, documentaries, podcasts, you know, like, and then especially diving into the hardcore data, you know, like the data is, is. That's really, that's really where um, that, the intellectual transformation has happened for me on this topic. When you're looking at data, there's a handful of things you need to look out for. When you're looking at news stories, whether it's something that's posted to someone's Facebook, or it's something from CNN or Fox News, if it's something from the Smithsonian, you need to look for who's the author. You know, who wrote this piece? Because mm-hmm. if there's no author's name on that, that's an automatic warning sign because no. you don't know where it's coming from at all. No. Number two, who published it? Is this something that uh, CNN is saying this was published originally by uh, myideasandopinions.blogspot? You know, it's like that's probably not a very trustworthy publishing source. Number three, who reviewed this? Was there an editorial board that had to approve of this? Was there a peer review system? Yep. And then the last one, when was it written? 
Because if you're going to take, uh, like I've seen happen, some editorials on climate change from the 50s and try and use them today, guess what? It's not accurate anymore. No. You need to be finding yeah. news stories that are recent, recently peer-reviewed with a visible author from a trustworthy publication. Yeah. And, and I think this gets what you're kind of hitting at as epistemology. How do we discern what is true? And, you know, institutions and authority. And these are things that really help us. And I would say that most people in their specific field recognize that for their specific field. Like most of us can tell the difference between someone that went to med school and is actually a doctor and someone that has, you know, Googled, you know, a couple times on a subject. Like we can, we most, like we, when it comes to engineering or medicine or all these things, like we really care about authority. But for some reason, when it comes to science, there's this like you know, natural science, there's a breakdown, you know, or what? And or in, especially in the environmental sciences, it's, it's we see it as, as it's been politicized. And I, and I think it's been politicized because it has political implications. But what I have to say is data is actually not political. Now, policy proposals are what we do yeah. with the data the is. Interpretation. But we cannot let evidence be politicized. And, and that's why it's important for us to recognize where special interest groups are funding things. That's where it's important to recognize if something is a trusted institution or authority, if it's peer-reviewed or not. And I, and I think, you know, postmodernism has given us some good stuff, but one thing it hasn't given us, or one thing it's given us that I would say is not good is the way it's just politicized data and evidence and kind of subverted that as, as something that can, we can really, it's kind of, we kind of don't really see uh, objectivity as something that's really possible anymore. Right. And I would say on a subject like this, that's to our detriment. Like True. We, there needs to be objective facts. And we have to, like, we need objectivity. And that doesn't mean the goalposts don't change. That doesn't mean um, knowledge grows and critiques and refines. It just means, like, we can be as objective as possible. We can approximate objectivity the best we can. And we need a good epistemology. And you kind of just laid out that in a really helpful way for people. It's because it's not convenient to do that. It's very inconvenient to have to go and figure out what data is trustworthy and what isn't. And Mm -hmm. we can fall into these very easy niches of just receiving uncritically from people um, that we know in our life without ever testing like well, where did this where this yeah. idea come from yeah. because we're having like real implications and we're yeah. kind of shifting into the policy sector now and one of the, the things that the WHO the World Health Organization found that one in six deaths worldwide are directly related to human pollution and what would it look like in 50 years as these consequences they're just a greater degree they're yeah. getting worse and 92 percent of those deaths are in countries that yeah. are developing that have lax or no regulations yeah. for environmental pollution yeah. so you can see that there is a direct visible correlation between removing environmental regulations and people dying of pollution yeah and we're already starting to see the effects of that here yeah. in america and I, th- I think what's challenging about this is we have to be honest anti-institutionalism is a pretty big cultural movement right no one wants the government to change their thermostat yeah and so it's something that affects us on so many issues i mean like it's hard to think of a better like it even on a subject like vaccines if i if i will quote world health organization which has actually has data from every country because it's worked with all these governments too and someone says well that's the who you know it's like of course they're like pro-vax, you know, da, da, da. And, and there's instantly a visceral reaction against it because it, it but I'm thinking, well, how, how do you know that 
the data in Botswana? How do you know the data in Thailand or, you know, like Kazakhstan? Like, how do, how do you know that? Like, unless you have institutions like this. And so if you, it, in a lot of sense, it's like a switch. If you flip the institutional switch off and say, I don't trust institutional knowledge. Well, we're in the wild, wild west now. Right. Because now you've decided I can't trust anyone. But what happens is they don't just distrust all institutions. There's just an automatic and very easy distrust of institutions that you personally disagree with. With yes, and that is that's that it really is the trouble. And so there is an anti there's an anti institutionalism, and as we segue into policy, there's also an anti globalism, an anti cooperation, yeah. anti collectivism, where people, you know. They're great if individual nations do things or individuals as persons do things. But the moment there's any type of thing that has a scent of cooperation, collectivism, it's suddenly no. And so what I, what I have to say is I think the first step is self-awareness. Are we self-aware of our own personal biases? Um, do, we, do we have an anti-institutionalism that might be unhealthy? And, and doesn't create a pathway forward to really... to to ascertain what is true and to move forward and do what's right. And, and do we have, and so I think that's what I would say is as people, as we're listening and I have to think about myself, we have to do the same. What are our biases? What are where? And then we have to be willing to, to change those. And so that's why it's really complex. Are we taking the time to figure out who we can trust and who we can't, or are we just taking it uncritically? Yeah. Because we are having effects. There are people who are already dying and it's just going to be getting, a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, if you thought that the American Dust Bowl was bad, just wait until the second one hits and it doesn't end. Mm-hmm. And if you're not looking at this for your own sake, you know, love your children, love your nieces and nephews, love the next generation enough to mm-hmm. say, I'm not going to gift you a world that's full of policies where you yeah. are going to be starving in your own homes. Yeah. I, and, and I think... It's, a, it's about love of neighbor. If you can distill the Christian faith down into two things, according to Jesus, <laughs> I think he gets a say on that, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion. Um, it's loving God with your heart, and it's loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think the big thing that, we, that needs to shift, actually, in environmental dialogue, and I think it was one of the weaknesses of um, some of the um, kind of antecedents in the, in the environmentalism, I think like the Al Gores of the world, like in the 80s and 90s, is we thought we could show a picture of a polar bear and that that would genuinely shift the human heart to make a major lifestyle change. And <laughs> yeah. what I would say is we talked about polar bears we earlier. We made a joke at it. There, it's, it's, I love polar bears, but I'll tell you what. I really care about sentient, conscious human beings that bear the image of God. And they're the ones that I am looking at going, oh my gosh, the poor of the earth. And I'll say the shift for me happened when I read Pope Francis, his encyclical on climate change and inequality, on care for a common home. That's what it's called. And the major thing he did, and it really persuaded me, was he showed the connection between people and the environment. And I realized this isn't just about the trees. Like, we tree huggers. You know, this mm-hmm. is about the trees and people because we all, we're all, we all share the same home. Yeah, this is all just one planet. And when you look at the data on how the poor will be disproportionately affected, that's when my Christian ethic kicks in the high drive and I go, this isn't an option, and this isn't secondary. This is, this is something central. This is something that has priority that we have to take seriously. So I actually encourage listeners, uh, let, read, read that book. 
Um, that is a really helpful, really what was helpful the book. book. Title again? And it's an encyclical on climate change and equality. And so, and what's amazing is, and this is something that's really powerful about institutions for all the the good, the bad, and the ugly of Catholicism. I love Catholicism. We weep over some of the things that are happening in Catholicism, but to have an inst, you know a spiritual intellectual leader put out a statement for almost a billion plus people to say this yeah. is something we have to take seriously. That's very important. And so I encourage even Protestants that are listening and secular persons, read that book. It's really helpful on showing that connection. And that's why we can't divorce environment from people and we can't uh, divorce economy versus environmentalism. Because that's another thing with the wedding of like religion and politics in our country. A lot of people in our country will go, we just can't do those things economically. Like they'll just say, oh, it's going to hurt our economy. And it's kind of a stopgap right there. Well, yeah, and, and I've heard that a lot. We're coming up into another election cycle. Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of changes taking place. And there might be some people reelected, some people changed out. But when you're looking at that, if you want to have a responsible, Christian, moral, loving approach, yeah. look at the, the policies that they propose for our environment. Because mm-hmm. if you're loving God and loving people, but you're voting on policies that just keep a few extra dollars in your own pocket. Yeah. That's not love. That's selfishness. Yeah. Are we going to allow for greed and short-term gains to yeah. blind us to the pain that we're inflicting on other people? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes pain and suffering is inevitable. In fact, a lot of times it is. But that doesn't give us the excuse to just completely turn a blind eye to the way that our votes actually affect our planet. Yeah. Because we are one strange rock. I mean, I love that documentary series yeah. by Darren Aronofsky and Will Smith, where they talk about like our planet is a peopling planet. We are one organism. Yep. In the same way that you are a body composed of many cells, you can't just continue to cover your outside of your body with acid and, and say, yeah. well, it doesn't matter because that's not touching my internal totally. organs. You are one living organism. Yep. And as we're continuing to poison parts of our organism, we are going to feel the effects of that. Yeah. So when you're looking at politics, policy for the future, are you voting for people who are going to uh, enact legislation on our environment out of a place of love or out yeah. of a place of greed? Yeah. Do you want to just be able to feel a little bit less pinch um, from your tax perspective? Yeah. I think, I think that's really important. Two, kind of two things to distill from what, for what you kind of just got at is when we, think, when we think economically, are we thinking short-term or long-term? Um, E.O. Wilson, he's a famous biologist, um, in his book, The Creation Appeal to Save Life on Earth, he has a whole chapter on the long-term economic benefits of, in, of being environmentally conscious Absolutely. And, 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 and innovating on these areas. And so I think we, we can't divorce those two things at all, and we can't divorce people from environment as well. And it, and it, and it is challenging um, in the political sphere today because on one side you have you know, conservative politics. And what we'll say is in this podcast, we, there are critiques to be made of every political party and ideology in this country. And so, but when it comes to conservative politics in this country, it's hard because it uses pro-life as the, as the wedge issue to, to pull people um, conservative. And yet, in my opinion, it often fails to be holistically pro-life. And I would, I would argue is that if you aren't, if you actually aren't prioritizing the environment, which is connected to care for the poor. Big L life. Yeah. Then I, I don't know if the term pro-life is truly characteristic of your politics. And I'll say that of myself. If I am not genuinely caring about the environment and thinking about the ramifications on the poor 
around the earth, then I wouldn't, I don't think I can characterize myself as actually holistically, consistently pro-life. Yeah. Are you actually loving if you are incredibly uh, specific and if you're only very specific about who you love, yeah, you know, you're not about big L love. You're just about loving people. It's easy to again, convenient versus inconvenient. Yep. And from that financial side, Citibank who has no reason uh, to promote climate change preventative legislation because it hurts their own bottom line immediately released a study uh, this year that unchecked climate change at its current rate is going to cost us more than $40 trillion by 2060. No. That the actual cost in the long run, like you were saying, is so astronomical. Yep. So you look at our GDP now, it that looks quite, you know, around, you know, our... <laughs> around 20 trillion dollars you look at our deficit like 19 trillion that compare that to 40 trillion 40 trillion yeah and and something that we need to look out for is that there's been a real concerted effort by institutions that are profiting from current pollution standards ones that as we deregulate their profit margins go up our oil companies our power companies our plastic producers um that there's been a concerted effort to shift the onus of climate change onto the individual. Yeah. And we know that we do have individual as a consumer, like just your average person at home in America does have a responsibility to be conscious with their everyday actions. But the everyday person who's not turning their sink off when they brush their teeth is not the primary source of anthropomorphic climate change. Yeah. It is big industry around the world, which is where it comes in that fear you brought up of globalism. Yeah. We're afraid of anything that's going to be a global institution that might have the power to change your personal thermostat. Yeah. But just you using a recyclable coffee cup every day and switching from plastic bags to paper mm-hmm. and using your car a little bit less is not going to save the earth. Yeah. We need large macro scale policy. Yeah. I, what I think is really important for, and I, lo- I love how we kind of drill in and, and go macro. It's really important for politics in the 21st century is to be, to approach it on a case by case basis. We don't, we cannot afford to be ideologues to say there's always, it's always should be nationalistic or it always should be global. It should always be capitalistic. It should always be socialized. You know, we, we fail when we try to fit a complex political landscape into these little boxes. And someone I really like, uh, Fried Zakaria, he's on a CNN um, journalist, is he really adopts a case by case um, kind of basis. So there, there are things where he's like, oh, I think the private market should really handle this. No, I think, and he'll say, these are areas where I think, you know, the national government should handle this. These are areas where, you know, national government should do it. Here are areas where we need global cooperation. And I think we need to break this down. And I think here's a simple argument for why when it comes to climate change and environmentalism, we need to tackle this at a global level. We need global cooperation. We need cooperation between nation states. That's what we, the word globalism has become this pejorative in a lot of circles. Like what we mean is we want human beings in India, China, Russia, USA, Great Britain, Brazil to be thinking about how we can do this together. And here's why. One simple thing. The environment doesn't have borders. It doesn't. (laughs) We don't have American air and American water and Indian air and Indian water you know, in Russian air and Russian water, we, we have a planet. We have a global ecosystem. What goes into the ocean on the coast exactly. of India affects the coast of Florida and the inland cities of Chicago. And because of a global kind of uh, capitalistic market, 
we're actually responsible for the production in other nations, right? We are. And it's not so... It's, it's interesting, actually, like we can look at China for global emissions, but ironically, two things. Number one, the USA has higher emissions per capita than China because our population is smaller. But two, China, we've, we've, won, we've made China the major production, you know, <laughs> like economy of the world. We're all profiteering and we're all reaping the benefits of that. And so we have to be honest about the way our economy works and how the way the environment works to realize this is an issue we have to tackle at a global level. There just isn't an alternative. Now, that doesn't mean nations need to do their own thing, but, but we need global cooperation. And it's right. that simple. Because other countries, whether we want to admit it or not, are aware of the incoming storm. Yeah. You know, South Korea has already switched to preponderously relying on renewable energy. Japan, almost like, like 9 out of 10 of their units of energy are coming from renewable sources because they know that this crisis is coming. Yeah. And if you don't believe that global warming is actually going to occur, well, then you don't have to look any further than the enemies of our country because they have no reason to want to cooperate in reducing our global output of CO2 emissions because you can look at Russia and the way that they're preparing for the melting of the ice over yeah. Siberia, that there is being a large population boom that is being slowly funneled into those areas because soon when it's too warm to grow plants that we can eat in america where all of our bread basket comes from siberia is going to be the next zone and russia's preparing for that you know it's like this isn't just a conspiracy that or a liberal hoax that people are trying to convince you of um, so that they can take some of your agency and power away this is something that's going to be immediately a threat to you and your children during our lifetimes yeah it it's something we have to tackle at a global level. And I think the most recent form of global cooperation at a policy level was the Paris Climate Agreement. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I want to hit it for a few things. Number one, one ma- a major critique of the Paris Climate Agreement is that it doesn't go far enough. And what I would say is it's a, that's a truism. Every single legislator and representative that was a part of creating that agrees it doesn't go far enough what they would say is it's a first step so often i i hear people who are critical of you know any type of of climate change and critical of any type of policies they'll say oh well even if the issue is that bad this won't fix it and my first response is yes it won't but we have to take steps we have to and actually really the amazing thing is i think um I'll, i'll get my countries wrong but i think there was only three nations in the world that didn't actually, that backed off and didn't sign it. And two of them are the USA and Syria. So we're like, oh, and it's, uh, it's ironic. Um, so the fact that we are able to get every country to the table and it also, what it does is it's a turn signal to business. It's a, it's a turn signal to commerce to say, this is where we're going. If you want to be successful economically, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, in the 21st century, here is our massive right-hand turn signal. And Hold I, businesses accountable. Exactly. And so that, that alone also, it created some really good goals. And, 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 I, and I, as first steps, and a lot of people will hear you know, Trump say, we're being ripped off. I'm, I pulled out because we're being ripped off. If we're going to go back in, I'm going to negotiate um, the, the better terms for us so that we're not disproportionately holding the responsibility. Here's a couple of things I'll say to that. Number one, the U.S. has the highest emissions per capita in the world of any country. So we probably do need to bear that responsibility. But number two, 
what, what, one of the major things that Trump critiqued was um, the Paris Agreement was going to create a pot of $100 billion that uh, developing countries would send to not underdeveloped countries. Because one of the hard things about this subject is that there are countries that haven't really been industrialized yet or big parts. And for them to go from like to not be able to naturally go into like have ele- electricity and that's often powered by coal to have to s- skip that to renewables is really hard. It's a big jump. It's a big thing. And, and that is one of the major uh, push points that is good on the subject is, yes, it's going to hurt the poor in the future, but it's actually going to hurt them to transition to some. And we have to think about that because the poor always get the bad end of the stick. Yeah. And, and so, so they were wanting to create $100 billion to, that developing countries would give to underdeveloped countries to kind of help kind of make these transitions. Well, the USA was responsible for $3 billion out of that $100 billion pot. $3 billion is not a lot for 3%. our country. Yeah. And it's not a lot for our country. We're talking, our GDP is $20 trillion. Our deficit is $19 billion. I don't know the exact data, but I think we spent roughly around $8 billion on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're like, Much more than that. Yeah, even more. Or eight, I, I we're, meant trillion. Eight trillion. I meant trillion. Excuse yeah. me. Eight trillion. And the deficit number was trillion, not billion. Yeah, yeah. I meant, did I say billion? Yeah. I mean trillions, friends. Trillions. Trillions and trillions. Trillions and trillions Huge. of stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'm going, $3 billion is not a lot of money compared to a $20 trillion GDP. Yeah. Uh, the money that we spend, at the, you know, throw at our defense budget defense budget over, you know, $600 billion a year. I'm going, God, this is, this is not the issue. Like, trust me. And so also the other thing was like the, the, what we were projecting our carbon emission reduction would be. And people were saying, oh, this is too much. We were only going to try to reduce it from 24 to 22%, not a lot. And actually we were at 20% under Bush. So like, it's possible. It's more than possible. So it would completely, red herring, just like it, this is logical fallacy. Like this is not an issue. And so I would, I would say it's a first step. And the fact that the United States of America that I would like to think is a pretty awesome country on lots of issues pulled out of that is, is it's not just detrimental. It's actually embarrassing. Um, and the environmental policies under this administration have been embarrassing. And, and I, and I think no matter who's going to be in office, um, Republican or Democrat, I would like to think we can reverse this one because this isn't a political issue. And this is something where you can actually have a, a means of change on what we're doing. Yeah. Because one day of voting has more impact than a year of recycling. Yeah. You know, you're one time going in and saying, like, I'm going to look for candidates who are going to support being a part of the Paris, you know, climate initiative. Yeah. The, the Paris Agreement. The being a part of reducing emissions and holding our companies and the companies that we work with overseas accountable mm. for the kind of pollution they're outputting. Yep. Like your vote actually has an impact there. Mm-hmm. And it's something that like, if you're listening to this, if you're a part of it, if you live on earth, then you're a part of this conversation. Yep. And so what are you doing about it? There's a lot mm. of things you can do every day, but the biggest thing is just getting out there and voting. Yep. And I'll say this, um, you know, I'm, I'm more centrist. I kind of, in in my politics, and that doesn't mean it's better. There's no golden mean. But I'll say this. I really look forward to a conservatism that's environmentally oriented. 
I think we can have real discussions about economy and healthcare and all these other things. And I think the environment is something I would love to see bipartisanship on that we can agree on. Now, maybe we'll, we'll disagree on certain policy proposals, but when it comes to the data, when it comes to the urgency, when it comes to the awareness that we need to uh, tackle us at a collective and globalist level, I look forward to that. And I actually, I, maybe I'm a little too optimistic, but I actually really think that's around the corner. And I want to encourage all my conservative friends, like, you can be economically conservative and really, really be environmentally oriented. And I, I want to see a shift on that big time. And I yeah. think it has to start, like you said, through political representation. Like, let's get some people in the White House, both sides of the aisle that are that are really that are doing it well on this on this topic. Because I don't want to continue to just browbeat each other. Yeah. One side browbeating with the 97 percent consensus and just saying, how could you possibly not believe this? The other one saying, how could you want to give so much control over to certain entities? Like, I think we need to come together, whether you're in a place of having not made action on climate change or not believing in it, or you are interacting with people in your life. To make it a, a, a dialogue around love. Yeah. Make it a dialogue around creation care. Make yeah. it a dialogue around how are we caring for each other, for what God has given us, for the people that are coming after us. Yeah. Are we demonstrating more love or convenience in the yeah. decisions that we're making? Mm-hmm. And um, I'll say at another level, I think there's been a lot of weaknesses to American exceptionalism, but I do, I kind of... The more I travel the world, the more I am embarrassed on this specific topic when it comes to our country. I want to recover a, uh, an innovate, like an entrepreneurial innovative spirit, like the type of thing that got us on the moon. Like we're, we are an amazing species. Let's just be honest, like what we can do. And I think we can motivate with, with a, a healthy sense of fear going, this is the future we're headed into, but we can also motivate with a healthy sense of inspiration that like spurs innovation. Like I am looking forward to environmental engineering and what we are going to come up with specifically in the realm of renewable energy. Like we were even talking yesterday about like theoretical ideas about like scrubbing the yeah, atmosphere. Ozone like, scrubbers. Oh, it's so, it's so exciting. Look that up, go on Google and look up uh, the potential ideas for ozone scrubbers yeah. because that is something worth investing in. For real. And I, I, I think we can recover that entrepreneurial, innovative spirit where we can wed environmentalism and economy and engineering and really come up with some amazing things. Because there's a huge hope. There's yeah. a lot of optimism for what we could do if we come together. But we have yep. to put aside our petty differences and to say, like, theologically, we love each other and God too much yeah. not to address what's going on. Yep. So I think, I, think that's a good, I think that's a good thing to get is to, to be sober-minded and to be honest but to also be hopeful and innovative and say, as an individual, I'm going to try to tackle this in the ways I can. But I also know that as an individual, I'm, I'm a very, 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 very small slice of the pie. And we have to yeah. tackle this through political representation, voting, and also through cooperation. And I'll say this, India and China are, because the thing about the Paris Agreement is each country created their own projections, Right. So they were, Nicaragua was coming to the table and China was coming to the table and Belgium was coming to the table saying, this is how we as a country are going to try to tackle this and had a time frame to it. The, the Paris Agreement wasn't tell, prescribing countries what to do. Yeah. Countries were coming to the table and saying, we're going to try to do this This ourselves. isn't some shadow government. Exactly. Globalist. India and China are meeting like their projections before, ahead of time. Right. They're smashing them. Like, and, 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 and there's a sense of pride. I'm going... We can do that. I, that's what I mean by recovering a healthy sense of American exceptionalism. I want to be kind of competitive. Like, let's get our act together. Like, yeah. why are we letting China beat us on this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, for real. 
And one like last thing I wanted to bring up that's just more specifically a personal issue to me is especially after this past week getting out into the national parks, the national forests, is that they're so beautiful. These are images and gifts and places that I want my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to be able to experience the beauty of, to yeah. connect to God on top of those mountains the way I did. Yep. But our forests and our parks are in immediate danger. Because the regulations that keep them safe, that keep them forested, that keep them from being used for fracking or oil drilling, the things that keep it so that we cannot be filling them with pollutants, all of those regulations are being stripped away right now. And as my personal cry out to anyone who's listening to this, to anyone who's listening to this to pass on to your friends, is to say, we need to save our parks. This is not something that is just a tree hugger or a liberal or a hippie conspiracy to try and keep together. The forests and the beauty of our country, the things that make America so amazing, the things that people have written songs and hymns and music and poetry about for generations are in immediate danger. And yeah. we need to be getting out into the, the polling booths, into the voting booths, and into our discussions with our friends, families, and churches about mm-hmm. what are we doing to make sure that these parks are still around yeah. when we're gone. I, I would love to see a republicanism that is a much more akin to Theodore Roosevelt than Donald Trump. And <laughs> and that re- recovering <laughs> recovering that conservation. Um, yeah. and that's part of conservative history. And the reason I say this is we're addressing Let's conserve. Yeah. <laughs> the reason conserve I'm a, we're, the reason and the reason we're addressing conservative politics or better for worse, mostly for worse, um, is that it largely has been the Republican Party that has been suppressing science mm-hmm. and has resisted really healthy policy on this specific issue. And there's going to be times we address issues on this podcast where it's going to be vice versa. Right. And that's us trying to rise above the ideology and the polarization and to be evidence-based. And so that's, you know, I think that's important. You can still be pro-business and be pro-environment, that they are not mutually exclusive, but that in current uh, political climate, it has mm-hmm. been drawn to the extreme of... Uh, pro-business to the point where it is anti-climate. Yeah. And I think that, like you're saying, like I long for a Republican Party that returns to understanding that conserving our natural beauty yeah. is just as important as preserving our business interests. Exactly. And I would argue, as as we've already stated a few times on this podcast today, if we care about long-term economic success, then we have to take environmentalism seriously. Oh, yeah. There's uh, 160,000 people in America employed by the coal industry and that's shrinking like really quickly it doesn't matter what policies you put into place like coal is not going to be coming back like we're no longer going to be leading the world in people who burn rocks we dig up out of the ground however there's already more than four million americans working in wind solar and energy efficient wow with an estimated 1.3 million more jobs yeah that's 160,000 in comparison to 5.3 million yep if you want to make the smart investment, I think you know which way you want to go. Exactly. And like we said, those special interest groups, they, they see it on the corner too, and they're preparing for it. They're preparing for Exxon it. ExxonMobil is preparing <laughs> for it. So I think let's, I think we've kind of got through those three acts, the theology, for sure. the science, and the policy. Are there any closing thoughts that you have? Get out into a park. Get yeah. out into nature. Go on a hike this week. Whether you do that all the time or you never do, uh, if you've listened to this, I want to challenge you to go outside and to take a look and to to question yourself. Am I okay yeah. with this disappearing? Yeah. Am I okay with these animals not being here in 100 years? Am I okay with these trees not surviving? Yeah. 
What are, um, what are some of the documentary series? You love documentaries that, that have been influential yes. on this topic that we can recommend to people that have heard this podcast today and go, I'm really interested. Um, this even, it's given me food for thought and I have some things to think about. Um, what, are, what are some of those? Um, so specifically look up the work of Catherine Hayhoe. Um, she has done a, a series of documentaries on environmentalism and evangelicalism because yeah. she is an evangelical and speaks very frequently at churches and is addressing the questions of people who either don't believe in climate change, don't know what to do about it, or are just completely outside of the discussion. Yeah. And so she's really good at engaging those conversations and for giving ways of saying, hey, this is how we can continue to be evangelical Protestant believers in Christ. And these are responsible ways we can look at climate change. And these are the steps that you can take in your life yeah. in order to address those. And you mentioned One Strange Rock. That is a really good... Oh, it's incredible. It's really good. And the first episode shows you that how the just the ecosystems on the planet are so interconnected. If All you, interconnected. If you want to know that the environment doesn't have borders, watch the first episode of that documentary series in season one, and you will just yeah. be persuaded. If I could have anyone watch one episode of TV that I feel like would fundamentally change their perspective, it would be the first episode of One Strange yeah. Rock. Please just give it a look. It's an hour. And then I have a, I, I tend to be, I've been getting in the documentary series more recently, but I tend to just love reading. And Give us so, those books. What are those good books? So E.O. Wilson, famous biologist, at, um, his, his book, The Creation and Appeal to Save Life on Earth. And he specifically discusses basically how to bridge the gap between religious people and secular people on this topic. It's real. That's really helpful. I mentioned earlier, Pope Francis, the encyclical on climate change and equality. And then two more books. Um, one that's more written for a popular level and is really good is called Introducing Evangelical Eco-Theology. Um, that's by Daniel Bruner, Jennifer Butler, and A.J. Swoboda. That's really good, and it actually does those three acts that we talked about, hitting, awesome. you know, hitting the theology, the science, and the policy. But if, if some of you are wanting more of a heady hitter, it's more academic, technical, but it's on, it really gets in the data. It's by Michael S. Northcott, A Political Theology of Climate Change. He, some heady he, right he teaches there. ethics at Edinburgh and that book is really good. That's, that was, that was a game changer for me. Everything we said today, don't take it at our word. I want you to be as responsible with hearing us as you are with the way you're going to be looking at stories in the future. Find out who it is that wrote it, where it's published, if it was peer reviewed and if it adds up, like I, I would encourage you to, to take all of the statements we've made today and take them to your own research and go, Hey, what if this is true? What isn't? What am I going to do with it? Agreed. Agreed. This has been fun. Oh, I love it. We're actually looking out at Pikes Peak right now. It's, and, it's so serene. And I my, can't imagine a better place to record this. And my heart is full. And I think that one of the takeaways is we can live with that sober mindedness, but we also need to hone that inspiration. And I'm inspired from this week. I love you, Sam. I love this earth. I love all you guys who listen to it. There's just so much love. So much love. Peace out. Vote for love. <laughs> <laughs>